0: sitting here in Linda Manzer's workshop. She's kind enough to sit down with us and talk to us about her life in in music. How did you first connect with music? With music? Wow mm-hmm. that's
1: an interesting.
0: Because I think
1: Congratulations. music Congratulations you've just asked me the first f- the first question <laughs> I've never been asked. So <laughs> but I
0: can't imagine music not being a big part of your life.
1: Yeah well my my dad uh, used to was really big into music. He had a record player and Um, he had stacks of records, 78s and, you know, all the Benny Goodman, Mm -hmm. but classical stuff. I remember listening to Bolero (laughs) by Ravel and, and, um, listening to that over and over again. That, that struck me emotionally very powerfully when I was like seven or eight or something. Wow. And, um, so that kind of got me, made me understand the power of music. Um, and then, you know, as a teenager, the Beatles emerged when I was a young teen and uh, that was my, you know, my generation's discovery in music. And uh, I was a Beatle maniac. I went to all the, uh, you know, I went to all the shows. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, you did? I, yeah, I was wow. screaming. My dad took, I remember my dad took, um, I think it was six teenage girls, of which one of them fainted. We were standing on our chairs screaming. We were those obnoxious.
0: Was this at Maple Leaf Gardens? Yeah, it was Maple Leaf Gardens. Wow.
1: And one of them fainted and... Got dragged off by the Red Cross, and then as soon as she was able, she came back and got back standing on the chair, screaming. So uh, it was a great concert.
0: <laughs> now, I'm assuming you played guitar, but
1: yeah, I think of myself as um, like I, I started playing guitar probably because of the Beatles, because I I was I wanted to you know I loved the idea of playing guitar and pretending I was one of the Beatles. I was in a band called the Mop Tops, grade five and six.
0: And which one were you?
1: I think I was. Um, I think I was George. <laughs> I think I don't probably cuz I was the only one who could actually play guitar a little bit pretty quickly. Um but we just standed it up and pretended and shook our head and you know this little So it's did the that, first did, girl band I I was in.
0: Did you pursue music further?
1: I was a bad folk singer. I took it seriously enough to kind of uh continue on and in high school a lot of my friends were musicians and artists which was incredibly fantastic when you're a teenager to be around people that are sort of a little you know mm-hmm. uh exploratory in that department and um I I like um for instance one of my friends when I was a teenager was Tom Cochran he was oh. just starting out and uh I remember I actually gave him he had a sore throat and I gave him some health food uh, he was about to do his first record in a, in a demo studio and he had a sore throat, so I gave him some health food concoction I'd read about, and it, he lost his voice completely, so.
0: <laughs> so after taking your concoction? Yeah, after
1: taking my concoction, yeah. So, so I, you could have ruined his career. I did, Could I was trying to, right off the bat, so I mean, um, <laughs> I wonder if he'll even remember that. Yeah, I was very interested in, in music, and I had actually some really incredibly gifted uh, musical friends who um, were really... Uh, much better musically than I was. And at a certain point, I kind of realized I was sort of not a great folk singer. I mean, I was writing songs and... But it was, you know, as a teenager, what an incredible place to put your energy is in music. Okay, so before
0: you realized that, did you think there was a chance that you would pursue music as a career? Yeah, I thought I was... uh,
1: I was painting. I was doing a lot of uh, painting and uh, drawing and writing. And, you know, I was just this very creative group of people I hung out with and really grateful now that I crossed paths with them Um, because it allowed me to explore all that stuff and it was okay to be you know different in high school Um, and eventually I I, as a kind of a nerd in grade nine and ten I ended up sort of realizing it was okay I was sort of I had friends that I thought were pretty cool by the end of high school so then I went to two art colleges, right. and I was and, painting.
0: And thinking that you were going to be an Some artist? Some kind of artist. Okay. Yeah, I
1: wasn't sure what. and But I kept finding myself in the woodworking shop because um, I was making Delcimers. And which leads you to your next question. How did I... Get started <laughs> yes. making guitars. Wait a sec. You have my sheet. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I, was, <laughs> I, I went to see Joni Mitchell performing at Mariposa Folk Festival in Toronto, mm-hmm. um, on Toronto Island, and she's playing a Delsimer, which is a lap instrument with three strings, uh, three or four strings, and it's really quite easy to play because it's already tuned to a particular tune, and you just it, pretty much anywhere you hit it, it sounds great. And so I went to buy one at the Toronto Folklore Center. And they were $150, which I didn't have because I was a teenager. Uh, and so I, the guy talked me into buying a kit. I, spent, I sat arguing with him. I said, I can't do that. He said, sure you can. I said, I can't do it. And by the end of half an hour, he talked me into it. I bought the kit. How much I went was the home. Kit? Huh?
0: How much was the kit?
1: 75 bucks. And it was uh, actually, um, so I think that the company was advertising the Whole Earth Catalog. I mean, that's it was in the 60s. This would have been in the, the mid-60s, I think, that I did this. So, or late 60s, somewhere around there. And uh, I went home and I made a delcimer and there was this in- euphoric feeling when you put the strings on, like it was un- unbelievable. And I, what I didn't realize was that was my calling, but it took me years of going to a couple of art colleges, traveling, and finally I realized I was unsettled because I wasn't really a great guitar player or folk singer, definitely not a great folk singer. <laughs> um, and I was not... I don't know, I'm probably an adequate artist, like painter. and But it was great that I took that long to kind of focus on trying to find a guitar-making teacher because I had all these other skills I was developing at that time. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't idle. I was quite actively pursuing all these other, like, photography. and.
0: What did you think it was about making that dulcimer that connected with you?
1: It was the, the when you put... The strings on, and it came to life. It was like it—it it was an animated, living object.
0: Had you built anything else before?
1: I had. Uh, my brother reminded me of this, but I and I forgot when I was in my little band, the Mop Tops, and also the Timbuktu. <laughs> <laughs> there's two of us in Girl Guides. I was in a band when I was in Girl Guides. Um, what I took a guitar, and I wanted to look like George or um, John Lennon's Rickenbacker, right, which has. So I took a, a normal acoustic classical guitar, and I sawed it down the side, so I made it thinner, and I took the back off, and I put paper mache horns on it, so it looked... The idea was to paint it red and make it look like his, but I kind of lost interest. And then... <laughs> but when I put the strings back on, it because the back is actually... There's 200 pounds of pressure, tension, on a guitar neck. So if you take the back off, it just automatically springs up like a bow and arrow. So... <laughs> <laughs> the action was like about a foot off the fingerboard and it went behind, you know, my, the, the furnace in my basement, which my brother reminded me of this years later. I guess I blocked it out.
0: But so that other was my than first that, start. building something with your hands was something very <laughs> new to you then?
1: My dad was really good at fixing things. He was a television repairman. So uh, besides doing other stuff, he, that was what he did as a hobby. So he had a, a bench in the basement. And uh, he would go down there and fix things. And he had these lights and he had a little radio. And, you know, he would just sit there. And it was his, I could tell that it was like my dad's happy spot. So across the other side of the basement, I put up, made my own little bench with my own little lights. And I started painting. So, in a weird way, I had this kind of connection with my dad quietly where he'd be doing his thing with the televisions. And then I'd be at the other side of the uh, basement across from him sort of doing my paintings
0: I wonder if that has something to do I mean I wonder if that influenced you in any way in that Austin I mean it's a very solitary thing that you do mm-hmm. I presume making guitars yeah and 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 that you related to your dad's happy zone and it's your happy zone
1: yeah I th- I guess I saw that was my dad's I could tell in my dad's life that was his happy zone that was you know, he, there's three kids probably, you know, running around screaming and all the stuff that goes with having teenagers. And that was where he went to... Um, and I liked watching him fix stuff. You know, I liked watching all the stuff come together and, you know, moving stuff around and soldering. And it, I could see that... And then people would be happy that he'd fix stuff. So mm-hmm. um, it it was... Yeah, it definitely made me understand... Allowed me the space to kind of explore that kind of patience because really the thing about making guitars is you really have to go deep into what some people might consider boring stuff is where you're sanding a piece of wood until it sounds a certain way or you're cutting it or it because there's a, you know you can spend like 10 hours working on one little part of a guitar and um
0: and, you, and what is that like for you like when you're sitting there standing for 10 hours or five hours or whatever where is your mind like what are you thinking at that point well, are you
1: I have a real clear picture of where I'm going with it. So um, for me, it's like a journey. It's not that I'm just standing there going, oh my God, this is boring. I'm sanding, sanding. It's not like that at all. It's like I'm watching the wood come to life. I'm watching the wood transform from a big hunk of wood into something that is sonically sensitive. It's going to start making sound. And I'm also curious scientifically about how the thicknesses of the different woods are going to react with each other and, you know, it is, it's is—it's an exploratory journey. Every guitar is, you know, is a challenge because the wood is always different. So I'm getting to know the wood and tapping it. I'm hearing it transform, uh, going from like dead to suddenly very lively. And if you do too much to it, then it can go back to being dead. There's a sort of a sweet spot. And I guess it's, you know, I mean, that whole thing about the instrument coming to life, I really feel like, I try to do that with with the woods is I try to make them sort of live again or, you know, they have the potential to make in these incredible sounds that...
0: But I guess that's like trial and error. And through the years, as you've mastered your craft and you keep working on it, I guess you you learn, and I'm sure there's been a lot of errors or failures.
1: No, I've never made a mistake.
0: Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So going back... So at one point you decided that you wanted to pursue this and you uh-huh. approached Jean Larrave if you could be his apprentice. Yeah. Tell me the thinking behind that. Like, What did you think at that point that I want to be a guitar maker and mm-hmm. this is a career path? Or did you think, I just want to try making a guitar?
1: I had made, because I... Wow. Well, at the time, I'm trying to remember what it felt like at the time because I was living in Halifax going to the art college there, the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. Um, and I was... I wasn't connecting with the painting world because it was at that time into conceptual art. Mm -hmm. And I actually was sort of like the meat and potatoes kind of painter where I wanted to paint stuff that made sense to me. And I didn't want to, you know, do performance pieces that wasn't resonating with me. So I felt a little alienated. And then there was this, you know, I kept going into this shop where you're supposed to be making picture frames and making delcimers. And I, suddenly realized that was my happy zone. And that was, and then I started exploring it. And there was, it was difficult to find a teacher. I mean, it really was a huge exploration. There's no internet. There's no fax machines. There's no nothing. If you wanted to connect with people, you phoned or you wrote letters. And phone calls were even expensive in those days. Like I couldn't afford to call from Halifax to Toronto to, you know, harass Larravee until he hired me, which is basically what happened. It was actually because I was actually, one of my part-time jobs at Halifax was I was the switchboard operator at the college. So I would call for free. (laughs) That's the only reason. Free to you. Yeah, it was free to me. Sorry. Sorry, Halifax. Um, Yeah, so, and of course he thought, that's interesting, because he thought I had money. Because I was calling him all the time. (laughs) But it was only because I was...
0: So when he said no, and I th- I get the impression he said no more than once, mm-hmm. how did you feel? And what made you decide to continue? Because I always wonder about how people motivated to just keep pursuing to, until they get the answers that they want. Um,
1: I'm and I, I give my two older brothers credit for this because I, what I grew up in, you know, I was born in the fifties, so girls weren't allowed to do certain things. But I had two older brothers, and I knew that the rules could be bent because. They were allowed to play hockey. They were allowed to do stuff I wasn't allowed to do because I was a girl. And I could feel my parents were slightly unsettled about that. And my brothers liked me. They wanted me to hang out. Like, you know, they had a tree fort and there was no girls allowed. So I just knew, well, that's, you know, that that's not going to happen. So I, I was the pesky little sister and I would just follow them through the woods to their to the tree fort, and I would just hang around, and then I'd just start climbing, and they'd have to sort of kick me down the ladder, and, but then it would turn into fun, and I'd end up in the tree fort. So this was kind of, it was just a bigger version of that with different boys, and um, I just bugged Larrave. And what I, the turning point was, was when I, I, he said to me, I'm a male chauvinist, and I could hear his wife in the background laughing. Actually, if you ask David Wren, because he was living with uh, he he heard the other side of that phone call. Mm-hmm. And his wife started laughing. And I thought, Oh, he's like I can't he's not she's not taking him seriously, so I'm not going to. So I said, I don't care if you don't care. I mean, it was nineteen seventy four. It's not a particularly feminist thing to say, <laughs> but at the time it was the perfect thing to say. And he hired me. So he gave me a chance. And I I worked really hard. I was the only female there.
0: But before that, when he rejected you, how did you feel and what made you decide I can call him again?
1: Um, Probably that treehouse, okay. you know, thing is just, I was, I really wanted to, to explore it and I knew he was the guy and I didn't, I guess in my gut, I didn't really take him that seriously. I considered it a challenge, I guess. And then once I got the job, like basically, the other thing was when I walked up the stairs... To the shop, he was above a plumbing place in the uh, west side of Toronto. And it was an old wooden building. And I walked up the stairs, and at the top of the stairs, was David Wren was sitting there sanding a guitar neck with a piece of wood with sandpaper wrapped and a cup of tea. And the light was just sort of making everything golden. There's these old wooden windows. And he looked at me and he said, Oh, hello. And I went, Hi. And at that moment, I knew it was like a big bell went off, like a resonance in me. like that's what I want to do that's for sure what I want to do and so that I walked in to meet Laravase 10 seconds later and I'd already decided that this was really important to me I didn't understand until then when I walked in that I was home and I think I conveyed that to him with because uh, I, I you know I did I said everything I thought was the right thing to say for him to take a chance on me and I knew I was on trial and I just worked really hard and I worked my way up
0: I love moments like that when yeah. I talk to musicians or whoever, and there. Are, every so often, there are moments like that that change people's course of life, and yeah. and it's amazing, and then that that's the moment that you recall.
1: Yeah, and and there was chaos in my life for about two or three years before that, like because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had a zillion other types of jobs, and I was traveling around, and it. I think I had to have that, you know, um, chaos. Prior to that moment, so I, whenever I feel like I don't understand, you know, like there's chaos in my life, I always think it's just everything settling into, that went waiting for that door to open again, sort of to know what your direction is. So it, it kind of gave me faith to trust that bad things happen, so good things can happen.
0: So I understand the idea of that having that moment and thinking, this is what I want to pursue. This is I, this feels completely right, mm-hmm. but in reality. I can't imagine guitar making as a financially secure job (laughs) or I don't know even know if there was a plan for financial security or whatever zero plan (laughs) (laughs) but even a career I mean could you foresee yourself if everything worked out I will make guitars for the rest of my life is that uh, and make money and eat and
1: I was about 23 I was sort of thinking about you know, lunch, lunch, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't thinking ahead. But I, he asked me if I would stay for a few years. And I said, sure, thinking, oh, you know, I'll leave when I want to. But uh once I started working, I realized, you know, more and more and more that I was being fulfilled by doing this. I, I didn't care about the money. At first, I was living with my parents, so I didn't have any rent. Uh, and then I moved out into, you know, apartment with a bunch of people, and I, I didn't have to pay very much. So, but I was poor. I mean, I was poor. I was, you know, not eating well. Um, I The first 10 years of my career was a struggle. Even when I had some quite famous customers, I was always financially on the edge. It but wasn't... Never,
0: did you ever question? Did you ever think, why am I doing this? I No. Should...
1: Because I was happy. Because I think if you have... I mean, this sounds cliche, but if you're doing what you want to do, uh, you're... Your um, that's your reward. And I always had enough, just enough money to pay. So I had enough that I didn't have to stop. Like I had a room roof over my head and could pay for groceries. And, and then also what it forced me to do was actually be very diverse in what I did build. So if anybody would ask me to build something, I would say, sure. And if I, even if I had no clue what it was, they were even asking me to build, I was, so it forced (laughs) me to, you know, like for a good example is Bruce Coburn asking me to make a charango for him. I said, sure, what's what's a charango? <laughs> you know, don't, animal, don't, vegetable, or mineral, yeah. you know? I'd,
0: don't you get that at a Mexican restaurant or something? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I, I just, and that actually, then I'd, I'd, you know, I would just research it and find out, and then I would just figure out what it was, and I'd build it. And luckily, all these people were really, you know, open-minded about whatever they got. In particular, Pat Metheny, I had been working with him for a couple of years, and then he asked me to build a guitar with as many strings as possible, which was
0: was, was that the criteria? As many that was it? Not yeah. forty two or whatever?
1: No, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and wow! And so there's no other direction other than that. Actually, before yeah. we get to that, because I still want to go right. back, um, what did that apprenticeship with John Larrivée mean to you? Oh. Like, what did that teach you, and what did you come out of it?
1: Well, it established what was to be my future it was the 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 bedrock of what was going to be my career which I didn't know at the time and I was making you know relationships professional and personal with people who are now still my my best friends my alternate family I call them uh you know like people like David Wren is a really good friend of mine and a a, a beautiful builder and a you know a a dear friend of mine uh Grit Laskin had just left Larve, but he and I are really close friends, and all these people are Tony Duggan-Smith, George Gray, uh, um, Larive, Sergei DeYoung, Tony Duggan-Smith, who works with me occasionally still. Um, All these people were my pals, and we supported each other and helped each other, because we shared a common goal of wanting to understand how guitars were made, and to make the best guitar possible. And over time... At first, all their guitars were fairly similar. And then over time, each one of these builders developed their own sort of voice, their own style. And that for me has been the kind of the... At first, we were sort of competing with each other, which was weird because we're also friends. Mm -hmm. But what other... I can't think of another business where your competitors are also the people, the first people you'll call when you've got a problem. Like, my lacquer just cracked. Like, you know, what do you think that is? And then they would actually help you to further your art artistry. So there was this higher kind of cool thing that we are all striving for together. And over the years, um, we, we've we grown old together. I mean, I've been doing this now for over 40 years. So I'm, I've watched them have babies, and the babies have babies. And so, you know, it, it's my family. These guys are my family.
0: When you left, when you decided to leave Larravee and go out on your own, mm-hmm. at that point, did you think I could make a career making guitars?
1: I never thought very far ahead. <laughs> okay, can, can I make,
0: can I have dinner?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, can I make, I, I figured I'd just come back and I went out to, I went, from, moved from Toronto out to Victoria for a year and a half, I think it was, and then, or maybe it was two years, I can't remember, but um, I came back and I now was about to set up my own shop and that was actually, the baby bird had left the nest and I was flying solo and it was hard. because was scary? Oh yeah, I, I was broke. But I was, you know, I didn't care I was broke. I mean, I'm not a particularly, you know, uh, materialistic person. Um, So I I didn't need stuff. All I needed was my tools and and a workshop and a bench. And I was super happy just to work, you know, 12 hours a day if I had to, which I did. I would just work long hours. I was obsessed with making guitars for... You know, the, that's the only way I could have done it because um, you had to be obsessed to well, point, to be good at it. On your own, mm-hmm.
0: And does it do you get orders or do you just make them and hopefully sell them on consignment? Or how does that work?
1: When I came back, uh, there's a couple of stores that were interested in me. Uh, in particular, actually, Ring Music on Harvard Street and the Toronto Folklore Center. And Michael McLuhan, um, Marshall McLuhan's son, was had a music store. So he actually uh, said he would like to represent me right away. And that was because I'd been with Larrave. So he started selling my guitars for the first year. So I didn't have to worry about marketing at all. He just uh, took a, a cut and I wouldn't interact with the clients, which was perfect because I got to just buckle down. And then that changed one day when one of them found me, found my secret workshop. (laughs) <laughs> which I was sharing with a lute maker above a pool hall on College Street. And up the stairs came this guy looking for me who'd ordered a guitar, but he wanted to tell me, he wanted to interact with me. And so I did. And that was when I started realizing I needed possibly to cut out the middleman because I needed to know what the clients wanted. But the timing was great because I'd had about a, maybe two years of, of just, you know, getting my shop set up and working and getting good work habits. And then I was ready for the extra burden of, you know, selling them myself.
0: How important is it that you actually played in the mop tops? <laughs> <laughs> or no, actually, how important is it that you, you, you played the guitar? And then, you know, no matter how good you actually became, like that experience of knowing the guitar, because if you're dealing with the level of a Bruce Coburn or a Pat <laughs> Matheny, I mean... I presume their musicality is at a level that's beyond beyond me. Most people, <laughs> well, I would, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> but so is yes. that an easy thing to relate to? Because I—that's the part that I just you know when, you when don't understand. Yeah. yeah, like if Bruce says I want to do this, mm-hmm. how easy is it to execute that?
1: Well, everybody play, has a different style of playing. Everybody wants a different type of guitar. So what I, in some ways, the fact I'm not a great player, I think, has actually helped me a little bit because the guitar has to be really easy for me to play. So it has to, it can't be the reason I'm not playing it. So I make it as, if if the problem, if there's a problem, it's me, it's not the guitar. That was sort of, (laughs) I think ended up sort of helping. Right. Um, Somebody like uh, Pat Metheny and Bruce Coburn have very different um, technical setups Mm -hmm. on their guitars. Um, But the main thing is, is what it sounds like. And and they're both looking for slightly different things because they both have slightly different playing styles.
0: When they describe that, thing that they're looking for is that easy for you to to incorporate easily into your guitar that you're building
1: well i think to a degree people have to like what i do um so somebody like uh, i'm trying to think of somebody who doesn't play one of my guitars uh wouldn't you know connect some people aren't going to connect with what i do and and then but i so i've i've got a pretty specific thing i'm personally looking for in a sound and if the play but usually those you know, like people like Pat Metheny and Bruce Coburn, I love what they do, and that's kind of what I'm trying to do is make uh, that sound, like that full, rich, crisp, but fat kind of, you know, piano-y, as, as piano like as possible sound. Um, but I have a particular thing in my head that I'm aiming for that works with what they're looking for as well. But then the difference between them is I've got to make the guitar set up for them um right. because they're slightly as i said slightly different
0: so you knew this like i i saw an interview with pat Metheny, and he was talking about how you had approached him after a show yeah and you had brought your guitar he played it and it was that instantaneous connection with the instrument so you knew that possibly this guitar would connect with him
1: uh i hoped it would i was a huge fan <laughs> of his i i actually um i took him two guitars after the show back to his hotel room in 80, I think it was 81, he was at Convocation Hall, and I, I hadn't even actually planned to meet him, I was just sending him a a letter backstage, and I got called backstage to meet him, I guess he was just, it was, he was in the mood to meet a guitar maker or something, and, um, and then I had an apprentice at the time from Denmark, Peter, so, and uh, his drummer, Danny, the four of us were standing there, and Danny and Peter said, well, why don't we get some guitars, so Pat and I looked at each other and said, oh, Okay, sure, like no time like the present. So it was actually them who set up that meeting, not Pat and I, because and, we were both being polite and shy and <laughs> like, yo, someday we'll meet each other and you'll see my guitars. So I went back to my the pool hall shop and grabbed the only two guitars I had, which I hadn't even prepared them, which is actually sort of great because that's kind of basically he got what it, the real deal, what I really do. Took them back and he played both of them for about three hours. And he one of them in particular he absolutely loved – and he said, can you do this only without, uh, you know, with a cutaway? That was the difference. I said, sure. And I made, uh, I made him one, which was ended up being the one that he's had since then, it's, which he calls the Linda Six, which is just now, basically... I presume
0: that you have a lot of great relationships with musicians, but I would presume that that was one of the big turning points in your life?
1: Yeah, it, it was, definitely. I mean, if you were a guest in that hotel... That night, when I was in the elevator going down from him ordering the guitar, I was yelling, I was swooping it up. I was very wow. excited. It was like a dream come true, and I also knew it was a turning point. In, I mean, and then I saw him. it's interesting. I saw him about a month later in Connecticut. I went backstage, and he loved the guitar. He was really happy with it, and he said, um, he said, you know, I if you want, I'll endorse your guitars. He offered, and he says, do you think you can handle what that means? And I went, I was, you know, the thought bubble was, what the, does that mean? <laughs> and I, but I, my mouth said, sure. And I thought, oh, wow, there's like, he's, I'm about to go on a ride with this guy. So, so
0: and before him, I mean, you dealt with Colburn and a number of other, no, positions. I hadn't, oh, uh, I
1: hadn't dealt, I had, I think I'd met Bruce. I met Bruce through Leroy, Um okay. but I was an apprentice. And, uh, and then I started working with Bruce a, a couple of years after that.
0: So this would have been your first big-name endorsement.
1: Not really. <laughs> I was really incredibly lucky that... <laughs> so this is just another day. No, it was a big one because I'm a huge and still am Pat Matheny fan. Like, he was... But me. it's not
0: only that he liked that guitar, but he have made yeah. a lot of guitars, yeah. like a ridiculous amount of guitars. Well, the
1: <laughs> cool thing about Pat is he's, he's an explorer, he's an acoustical explorer. So he had all these ideas and I he now had a, a, a mad scientist to work with. So he would say, why don't we make a guitar that sounds like Charlie ba- Hayden's bass? I'd say, OK, and off I'd go. And three months later, I'd come back with something that sounded a bit like, not really, but a little bit like Charlie Hayden's bass and whatever it was he would kind of go great and you know he'd adapt to it and for him it was just a way to kind of wake up another musical side of himself or get i don't i'm not really sure but he just kept doing it every year I'd make him something different so i ended up sort of designing and inventing about 20 instruments that you know i had never seen before like the baritone the sitar guitar the um all the little mini- miniature guitars and the big guitars the picasso obviously and um Everything he always had a little twist on it. Like he always wanted to push a little bit the envelope, which was really good for me. Also, knowing that whatever I did, he was okay with it. Like he would, I would just do my best, and he would greet it with a big smile, and he'd just dig in and start playing. And and you know, maybe a couple of years later, it would appear on an album. Or I never knew I was.
0: But he's also talked about those instruments actually inspiring the actual album and what he cre- mm-hmm. created. Yeah. the actual instrument as opposed to, I mean, I, I, didn't, I don't know the process, but that's something amazing that, yeah. that he um, takes your instrument and because of that connection, yeah. he creates this other thing that becomes a recorded product.
1: Yeah. And I'm very grateful for that because it's a guitar maker's dream come true for that to happen. I mean, I'm in a very enviable position having a, somebody like that and, and I think it's partially because he and I have sort of connected in a way at the that we, we liked each we like each other um, and uh, I sort of think of him as like a brother um, and I'm I I'm, I love what he does and I'm you know I'm just tickled.
0: So when you said, "Do you know what this means?" when I endorsed it, mm-hmm. did it mean what you thought it would? Well, you didn't know what, but did it change your life at that yeah, point? Yeah, completely. To it, a point, it, uh, Well, it gave my it, career
1: or? credibility. Um, it, it, I had a stamp of approval from probably one of the greatest musicians in the world, um, saying, I like what she does. So that meant that people, when they're making a choice of who to go to for guitar, thought, well, if Pat says she's okay, then she must be okay. So it generated interest in me. And, um... It, but it was slow. It was actually good for me that it was really slow. Okay, so it, it didn't just turn you world no, upside no, down. No, no, it and... didn't turn my... No, it just it started me on a journey with him. But he was actually a really good teacher for me to handle the pressures of it. Um, I learned a lot by watching how he did interviews, for instance, or how he handled his time, or, um, you know, how... I, I, d- I learned a lot because he's a really... Um, besides, he's a very nice, authentic person, he, and, and he's very funny. But he's also he has vision of where he wants to go and he's really positive. So he just sort of goes forward into the light. Like he doesn't, you know, he doesn't complain. He just does stuff. He just moves forward. And if there's a problem or an obstacle, he just, you know, deals with it and moves forward. And that, that kind of attitude he had actually was, uh, part of the inspiration for me to like, when you're making a guitar, stuff happens that's hard sometimes like a, you know, you have to solve problems all the time when you're dealing with natural materials. And so even y- now, yeah. years
0: after creating many, many guitars, you oh. still <laughs> struggle with these oh, things. Oh, <laughs>
1: my God. It's wood. So, you know, just when you think you're fine, you, you know, something will, you know, show up. Okay, in, so like if a we reverse sap that. Sap pocket or something after you spent 30 hours <laughs> working on something, all of a sudden there's a, you know, like, where did that come from? Has there ever
0: been a guitar that you've made that was just like everything went well and it it was created without any problems?
1: Yeah, I mean, but there's also the ones that have been like the bad, you know, the kid, the worst kid. If you got a bunch of kids, (laughs) and uh, those are the ones actually that I give the most attention to. Interestingly, and often they're the best ones. So the problem child becomes the you know the best the best sounding guitar. It's it's kind of a bit random, a little bit, but. Um, yeah, occasionally it goes perfectly. I can think of one that um, I'm really proud of that uh, I was really happy with every aspect of it. Um, that, that that, but that's rare, and I, you're just used to dealing with surprises, and that's part. You have to have a really positive attitude and just keep moving forward.
0: So this guitar, the Picasso, which has 42 strings, mm-hmm. 40...
1: 42 strings. So when you create four necks, the... yeah, four
0: necks. So what four,
1: did... or, sorry, four string sections. What did that?
0: guitar do for you
1: it gave me a nervous breakdown <laughs> <laughs> um i it, it, it's an interesting story because he did say how many strings can you put on a guitar and i thought like in a line like parallel to each other so i just started drawing lines he was in, being interviewed uh, before he goes on tour he does a lot of interviews in a row so he was at his office management office in boston so and i was there so in between interviews i would come back and show him my next drawing of it and he'd go, no, um, like, and then he did his hands sort of like a windmill, like all over, you know, everywhere. And I went, oh, okay, so you want them all crisscrossing. So I just started drawing. And we, we came, you know, it took about five months to design. And I drew stuff, and I then it was impossible. I just went nuts. Like, the, some of the original things I was planning to do were way more outrageous than the final product, but... I, there was constrictions on what would explode or not, you know? And so. that's, the, that's
0: the concept that I, I wasn't familiar with, but now I know that you make a guitar, things can explode if it's not built properly. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so this has obviously happened to you.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. As recently as two weeks ago, something really? kind of broke while I was in the middle of... Yeah, I, I had a faulty uh, tailpiece on a, on a guitar, and um, I it had uh, it was a new design I was trying, and it just exploded. Sounded like a shotgun, and luckily it didn't damage the guitar, and I was able to replace it in time. But yeah, but you just sort of so when you draw
0: a monster like that, yes, you're obviously already quite conscious of the fact that you need this for this to work. You need to do these bracings and whatever. Or do you think of it, do you create it visually and then try to work out the details? Oh,
1: yeah. I I wouldn't start something like that until I have it all mapped out because there's no point in starting and going, "Uh uh-oh, I just painted myself into a corner. That's not going to work. You have to have the whole thing mapped out, drawn out. Every string has to be workable, and you have to guess what the string tension and pressures will be. Um, that, That guitar I built in 84, and it's still completely... I mean, there's a little bit of you know warping, a little tiny bit, but considering that there's about a thousand pounds of pressure on it, it's it's actually he uses it all the time. He still tours the world with it. So, I got that one right. There's there's the bar the first baritone I made, which is a much simpler guitar, was um was not well designed because it was an experiment because nobody that I know of had built a bear a uh, an acoustic baritone guitar before. I think there was one electric out there, but. So I hadn't done that and I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't guess right. And uh, so I had to replace the top, but I learned from that.
0: How do you measure success? And success being very relative, and I don't mean financially or it could be financially, but when you decide that you would take on this journey of being a guitar maker and, and just, I presume doing it every day and being able to eat is one level of success, but you've reached a point that's beyond that and and you've worked with obviously very talented musicians who believe in what you do. At what point did you think I've made it? Or is there (laughs) such a point?
1: I don't know. i made it. Um, For me, success is um, the last guitar I delivered to somebody in person and I sat down with them when they opened the case and picked it up and played it for the first time. And for me, it was I was nervous, he was nervous. You are always nervous because you never know if you're going to nail it. And you try and it wasn't quite exactly what he'd asked for because I had to make a few changes that worked you know physically for me.
0: So when that happens, does he know before you deliver the guitar? Eh, Do you send he him an email li- that says, eh, something's he, different." He,
1: he he gave me a little guidance. He a lot of times people just say, "Do what you want." Right. Cuz um so I I just did what I I, I it's a kind of thing where you have to kind of trust your own gut to overrule some of the stuff, to because the end goal is to make something that they connect with, and sometimes people think they want something like they want for instance a certain type of wood, and I know that wood might not be the right thing for that guitar, but they've got in their head they want something so but I'll work with them around that but in this case he just there's a couple of design features that I just sort of um, he knew he was going to get what i you know, he eventually left it in my hands and trusted me, which was actually perfect. So when he got it, for me, the success was about half an hour into the meeting, he was playing the guitar and he finished a song and he looked up at me and I could tell from his face that, you know, I that, that it was a success because he was inspired, he was happy, he was relieved, he was emotional And he was, um, you know, I mean, it was just beautiful. So that's that moment. That's why my goal is to inspire the musician. And Pat said it the best way is one of the things he liked about my guitars was he doesn't think about them. They don't get between him and his musical idea. So they're almost invisible. And that's kind of what I'm aiming for. And I have to keep that in mind when people ask for stuff that might interfere with that. Uh, the shape of the peghead or the size of the sound holes or something, something that I actually know more about sometimes than they do. And I just gently kind of push them towards, if they're coming to me, they want what I do. So I just. um,
0: And when, when did that become the case where, when they want to come to you, when they want the man's a guitar, they're basically coming to you for expertise as opposed to telling you what they really
1: want. Yeah, that's true that there was a turning point because at the beginning I would do whatever anybody asked me so I could pay my rent and there's some pretty interesting inlays out there that I slightly <laughs> regret, but um, <laughs> um, there was a point where I think it's just when I just knew, I mean, maybe it was about 20 years ago, maybe halfway through my career, I just realized I kind of knew what I was doing, and i I had to trust that. I couldn't I think I probably got redirected maybe once by somebody, and I didn't feel good about the guitar. Uh, actually, I know which guitar in particular that was, right. and um, and it that interestingly that particular guitar keeps resurfacing for sale, <laughs> which is interesting because it mm-hmm. means it hasn't found the right person yet. Um,
0: and there's always a right person.
1: Well, that was something Jim, I studied with Jimmy DeCristo as well as um, as, as Larave, and I had two incredible. I was very lucky. I had two incredible teachers. Um, DeQuisto kind of put it right, that if you, when you give a guitar, when you make a guitar, a lot of people say, can you let go of it? You spent all this time working on it. And my feeling is it's going to be played. It's going into the hands of somebody who's actually now going to bring it to life. But occasionally they don't connect with it. Um, and what ends up happening is they sell it. And somebody said, well, doesn't that bother you? And it it did until Jimmy told me this thing is that a guitar always ends up in the hands of the person it's supposed to be in. Hmm. So they can bounce around a bit, and then they find their right home. And that's, um, that is actually makes me really happy. So,
0: I'm sorry I have to ask this, but it occurred to me that there aren't that many women guitar makers. Maybe they are now, but they certainly weren't when you started. Was that ever an issue? Was that ever, other than the fact that Jean didn't want to hire you initially, yeah, cause but was other a than woman. that. Other than that. Was that
1: <laughs> <laughs> but did that him. ever get in the way? <laughs> yeah it did uh, at the beginning. And part of it was my own attitude because I thought, well, there's got to be something I can't do because I'm a girl, quote unquote, um, because I'm weaker or something. And it turned out there was one thing as I couldn't carry two five gallon pails of lacquer up the stairs at a time I could only carry one. That was the only thing I could ever figure out that was different, that I couldn't figure out leverage or something. I just it it I could do everything. I probably worked harder as an apprentice because I was so terrified of being fired. So it was probably improved my work ethic tremendously because I knew I was always potentially on the chopping block because I knew he had hired me, sort of against you know his instincts, but he did hire me. And um, yeah, there was like I would go into stores and people would assume I was um, with. I went into a hardware store that's now gone, um, in Toronto. And they assumed I was with one of the guys there. And there's, it was filled with people shopping and then you had to go up to the counter and order and they kept ignoring me and I got more and more frustrated and probably steam was coming out of my ears. And then I realized they thought I was somebody's girlfriend or wife. So they kept ignoring me, assuming I wasn't a real customer. So by the time I got there, I was you know ready to punch somebody. <laughs> but, um, but I just kind of, that, that stuff happened occasionally. Um, from you know, a musician's point of view, was yeah, the people at the very beginning. There's, I heard people wouldn't buy a guitar from me because I was a girl.
0: I wonder if it worked the other way by any way chance. I'm
1: sure it did. So I, I always figured it balanced out because I know for sure a couple of women bought guitars from me because they wanted to buy a guitar from a woman. So I think you know the good in my case, the good balanced out the bad. Um, there are more women guitar makers now. Um, it's sort of fairly normal for, but but it's still not a I'm I. A lot of women just aren't interested in getting dirty, you know. It's, it's interesting from a feminist point of view, because in the 70s, it was the 70, 74 was the feminist movement, and um, that was really, I get, a, I get asked about it all the time. At, and now I, I still get asked about it, but my flippant answer is, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a guy making guitars. I only know what it's like, so I don't mm-hmm. know what my life would have been if I hadn't been female as a guitar maker. I think it might have made a, some customers feel more comfortable with me than maybe with a guy. I don't know. I can't no, tell. No, I, I have to be the... <laughs> reincarnated in a parallel universe and come back as a man and do this again. Right. Then I can answer your question.
0: <laughs> All right. We'll make it a date. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> tell me. Well, You'll be a woman interviewing <laughs> me. Say, of course.
0: <laughs> can you tell me the first time you heard your guitar played oh. by somebody at a concert or whatever? What was that like?
1: The first, um, uh, I think the first time that I remember, I mean, gosh, you'd think I'd remember, but... So it was memorable, was it? Yeah, it was really memorable. (laughs) No, well, the first time I I actually remember is Pat playing my guitar. Okay. we was playing at Ontario Place, and um, I had bought tickets to go see him, and I knew he had my guitar, not realizing he left me comps, assuming I would just show up. So I was sort of in the general (laughs) audience, (laughs) and... uh, the, I, it was dark and it was that rotating stage and I could see somebody in the shadows bring this acoustic guitar and I recognized it. I knew it was mine and my heart started pounding. I went, oh, he's going to play my guitar. And I was so excited. And I had a camera and the light came on and there he was standing playing my guitar and I pushed the button. I'd borrowed the camera from a professional photographer and it was one of those ones that went click, 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 click. And it went through the whole roll of film right away. And cuz I couldn't I was so excited I didn't take my finger I off hope the you're shutter. You're focus. Yeah, and then then the I they then those pictures were lost. Um, but um yeah, it was exciting. It was beyond I it was beyond words for me and the song was spectacular. It was a song called First Circle by Pat Metheny and it sort of crescendos into this chill chilling An inspiring end it's a very long sort of epic piece and the whole audience went completely berserk at the end of it and I'm you know I've got tears running down my face I'm just like really couldn't have been a more spectacular uh, spectacular moment for me
0: would it be correct to say that the people you make guitars for it's not just this one-off exchange but it's an ongoing relationship (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because I get a lot of repeat customers because I get very involved with creating this thing with them. I mean, I do, you know, I told you that I don't let them interact with me or I let them tell me what to do, but I actually do as far as uh, inlay and design. And um, we discuss things. Um, I mean, I always get to overrule, but it's a really interesting process. And by the time it's all done, it's sort of great because they get the guitar and I get paid for it, and then it's over, and now the guitar is on, on its on its new life. But there's a sadness too because it's over, and I like I one client I have is Gary Larson, the cartoonist, mm-hmm. and I dragged that out for a year and a half <laughs> just because I enjoyed the relationship of writing back and forth to him and talking to him because he's funny,
0: I'm sure, he is. and he's
1: nice and he's lovely, and I just I didn't want it to end. So I kind of actually added about six months to the the build just so I could kind of hang out with him. Wow. But, so
0: And that's it? But at this point, there's no other...
1: Well, often people order second guitar. Like, you know, Pat has ordered 25 guitars from me over the years.
0: That's crazy.
1: Yeah. And uh, Bruce Coburn, I've worked with him. And Bruce and I ended up being actually, we're really good friends. Um, and I work with, in fact, his guitar's is uh, in the other room right now. I'm doing some... Uh, electrical work on it but um um you know that's it's kind of like i feel like a responsibility to if to you know try to make the guitar as good as i can so that they can play you know it's not it's they've got the best technical tool to work with that's my that's my job
0: and then 10 years down the line if something needs fixing do they come to you or do they go somewhere else Uh,
1: sometimes they come to me um and uh, like the guitar, Bruce has taken it to a couple of people to do something to it, and he he just brought it to me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I'm because he, I'm its mother, so I think he thinks I can fix whatever it is, which I sure hope I can. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they come back to me. Um, but I, I, they also there's a Tony Duggan Smith is a really excellent guitar repair guy as well as a builder himself. He lives in Toronto, and he does a lot of uh, he actually works with me sometimes still. But he's also he does repairs and restoration for me because he I would say of anybody he knows what you know inside what I do better than anyone because he's worked we've worked alongside each other. We were apprentices with Larivé and we're really good friends and he gets you know he and I share a similar philosophy about building. So uh, he I'm happy to hand him a guitar and say fix it repairing guitars is quite different than uh, building they're really different um, animals.
0: Tell me, what's the greatest thing you've learned from from this journey of building mm-hmm. guitars?
1: Um, to trust my instincts. Um, and even though I've had a lot of, uh, fi- you know, eventually monetary, it's it been good for me because I'm able to command a high price for my guitars now.
0: Did you? Sorry, did you ever imagine that would be the case? No.
1: No, it's like signing like, an that, oath of poverty. You but know? yeah, because
0: when you first worked with Larabee, he he wasn't making a lot of money. Was no. there any examples of somebody making me no? So people just did it for the love of making. Yeah,
1: it. yeah. There's no. I mean, it, the, it, the turning point was when collectors started noticing uh, brand new guitars instead of collecting vintage guitars, yeah. and that's when suddenly people with money collected started collecting living builders' guitars, and that's when it changed, which was perfect. Because it allowed me, you know, to have an income, like a real income. And um, But, you know, it, uh, even though it, 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 I make, you know, good, decent money for my guitars now, um, it's still really long hours. Like, it's exhausting. I, I, you know, I'll, I don't hesitate to work 10 or 12 hours sometimes in a row, just, you know, working, working, working. I'm very lucky. The thing I've learned is I'm very lucky that I got to do what I love living i got to interact with some of the most incredible musicians famous and non-famous in the world and help them bring their music i'm i actually believe that there's kind of like a vibe in the instruments that you so i sort of feel like i have this responsibility for me it's like as close to a religion as i'm going to get is trying to put good into it so that good comes out of it or you know in or honesty into it and i i think it's you know wood doesn't lie you can't BS a piece of wood into doing something it doesn't want to do it it, it, you have to connect with it and understand it so it's taught me to be more uh connected with myself and authentic and trust my gut um and I'm really grateful that I've been able to do this my whole life
0: this is great thank you so much for taking this time I just find it fascinating what you do thank you and, and I know Absolutely. you're very busy so <laughs> my <laughs> really pleasure you... oh wait before we <laughs> oh, go yes. okay yeah there is one project we have to talk about ah which is the ah. group of seven guitars yes and I'm luckily involved in this through Riddle Films but can you tell me about the, the group of seven guitars project that you're working on
1: yes uh, about four years ago I was walking through a, a gallery and I saw a bunch of painters paintings by the group of seven they're the uh, sketches and they're all lined up together all the little kind of sketches they would go out into the woods and then come back and do the bigger painting and I thought wow those guys are so great they're so fantastic and there's seven of them and they're all from Toronto and I thought huh I kind of started in Toronto with about seven people and they formed this community and they're really close and they encouraged it so did we we sort of did that and I came out of the gallery I thought I wonder if I should what well, would be cool is if the bunch of us, the seven of us, got together and did a, a sort of a homage to the group of seven painters. Because outside of Canada, the group of seven painters aren't that well known. And at this point, a lot of the seven people that were included in the project were all the original employees of Larivé that came out of Toronto. There are other people who are employ employees, apprentices, who are fantastic, but we had to limit it to the original first seven. And so each one of us, I called them. I said, do you want to do this project where each one of us makes one guitar uh, that's inspired by one of the group of seven? So um, they all said yes. And I had some friends involved in the art world uh, in galleries. And it ended up that the McMichael Gallery um, decided that this was a great project as well and commissioned us to build these guitars for a show that will be in the McMichael Gallery for six months in this May 2017 for the 150th anniversary of Canada and the 100-year anniversary of Tom Thompson's death. So he's the eighth uh, builder, and we're collectively building that guitar. So we kind of all got assigned one of the builders, slightly random, some of them, and slightly people picked who they wanted. I ended up slightly by accident, but I'm thrilled to have made a guitar inspired to, uh, by Lauren Harris.
0: A and, beautiful guitar.
1: Thank you. It's kind of like if he had done a painting, if he'd made a guitar, what would it look like? That's how I kind of... Once we started doing the project, um, it was actually more difficult than I thought. What was cool about it, though, was all the builders, each one of them, shall I list them? It was uh, John Larrave, David Wren, uh, Grit Laskin, Sergei De DeYoung, George Gray, Tony Duggan-Smith, and myself. And um, each person... Because it was this sense of community, we all work together, we support each other. But the moment we started the project, everybody went off on their own and didn't discuss what we were doing, <laughs> ironically. And and then we all just sort of came out with these fully emerged guitars and we all dove into each one of our artists full like, you know, full full on and researched them and came back with what our interpretation. They're all completely different. We did set some ground rules, is that we all discussed Slightly, what the guitar might look like, or like if it was going to be a classical or right. flamenco. So we had a variety in the event that they're played together. So there'd be some acoustical variety, but the only rule was it had to be playable.
0: And and they are, and I've, I've had the chance to see them in action, and it's stunning. So so that's next May and in... next
1: May, yeah, at the McMichael Gallery.
0: Actually, you can read up, read up on it at the McMichael uh, website right now.
1: So, yeah, so. and Riddle Films has done a documentary uh, showing what we did behind the scenes so it's great too because i'll get to see what everybody else was going through their thought process so yeah
0: great project and good for you for coming up with that it's just such an amazing thing so yeah
1: well i i I, it was my idea but everybody kind of ran with it and it became our project you know it's everybody's just dove in equally it's so so great and it was it's been fun like hilarious (laughs) like all the meetings together you know sort of like getting the band back together Mm -hmm. you know it's just we've had a fantastic time
0: so thank you again for this time I really appreciate you talking
1: to me my pleasure, Thanks. thanks